You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Scott Clout is pastor of Zootown Church, a dynamic contemporary praise and worship church with an evangelical energy, but also interestingly with roots in the early church fathers. The Zootown Church is located in Missoula, Montana, and the residents of that town call Missoula affectionately Zootown. So Zootown Church is a church for all Missoulians. The Zootown Church under Scott's leadership also exhibits an appreciation of Eastern Orthodox theology and has also incorporated ancient liturgy as well as the weekly celebration of communion as the focal point which culminates their worship experience. So Zootown is eclectic and diverse, but it's also very focused on grace and the mercy of God disclosed in Christ, so much so that Pastor Scott has been sharing publicly in his sermons his personal conviction that God's grace will finally prevail in all of our lives, and God will ultimately be all in all. The Zootown website is zootownchurch.com. You can access Pastor Scott's sermons through their website. They also produce the Zootown podcast, which is available on iTunes and Spotify, which is a very conversation-driven forum for discussion. The Zootown Church podcast is a very open and welcoming format, which I highly recommend. I regard Scott to be one of the most promising ministers of which I know, and I want to do what I can to promote Scott and the Zootown Church. So, Scott, Clout, welcome to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, thank you for the invite, David, and uh, it's one nice to meet you kind of in person, I guess. Yeah. But uh, first, let me just say this is a high honor to be on this podcast when you have guests like John Bear and Brian Zond and Brad Jerzak and all those guys, Jonathan Mitchell. I mean, this is this is an honor for me. So thank you. One of the reasons I did this podcast is to kind of keep my ear to the ground and see what interesting things were going on. And I was looking for podcasts uh, one day with, for, with Brad Jerzak because I've interviewed Brad and I've read his books mm-hmm. and I just I enjoy listening to him. And I think it's always interesting to listen to an interview that, that he gives and I was searching for interviews and I found the interview that you did, you all did with okay. Brad. Yeah, yeah. So I really, you know, so I enjoyed that podcast and, uh, and then I was searching around the internet and I found that you'd also done an interview with Peter Hyatt, mm-hmm. which is a friend of mine. And he's, he's been on this, on this podcast too. So I thought, huh, I mean, they're starting to hit pretty close to, to my territory. So I just reached out to you and we had a, we had a conversation and I was really impressed with your journey in your ministry and this, this Zootown church. And I'd kind of like to just start there about the, about the Zootown church. Cause this isn't just your own personal journey. You've kind of gone on this with the church. I don't want to say on your back, but you all have been, <laughs> you all have been going together through all this. So <laughs> let me just start out. Who is Zootown church for? What's it about? And what's going on there? Uh, we started Zootown Church in 2009. Actually, 2008, we started a coffee shop. Uh, it wasn't a Christian coffee shop. It was just a coffee shop downtown. Uh, our original plan was we were going to st- start a church in a brewery. Missoula loves their beer. But uh, at the time, we were with a denomination that didn't allow drinking, really, or they just weren't. F- I mean, they didn't. 
it was kind of tongue in cheek, but because some people did, some people didn't, but that mm-hmm. wasn't going to fly. So we figured the next best drug is caffeine. <laughs> so I uh, started at a coffee shop in 2008, right when the market crashed, literally the month the market crashed in a way. Oh, yeah. So I remember that. Uh, talk about, you know, believing having to believe that God told you what he told you and following through on it. But uh, so we took that year just to meet people. And then um, a year later, we started uh, a service once a month for about 15 to 20 people. First few years were, were just rough trying to figure it out with the business. You know, a lot of things I look back now, I, I, the, I should have never been managing the business and the church at the same time. Like mm-hmm. it, cause it hurt both, you know, it hurt both. So that was too much for me and too much for the church and all kinds of stuff. But first few years it went pretty slow. And then all of a sudden it just took off. We ended up doing like four services a morning, a Sunday morning. It was something special because people were lined up down the block to get in. And so that that was really a special time. And then we ended up buying a building across town, a 60,000 square foot building. And we still kept the downtown coffee shop and had services out of there on Thursday night and then uh, had Sunday services at the new place. But about three, three years ago in May, we went through a church split and uh, we closed, ended up closing the coffee shop for not just financial reasons, but also it was kind of a, it became kind of a sacred cow. Like it did what it was mm-hmm. supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but it just, it was, it was an aspect of our ministry we could no longer put focus to. So ended up closing that coffee shop, but we went right in from a church split right into COVID. And it's been a interesting three years, not just for us, but every church. So I think I remember in one of your podcast episodes, or it might've been a conversation that we had, that there was a kind of divine intervention when you went into COVID and that there was just some, somebody who really believed in your, what you were doing in your congregation and basically kind of financially supported you through that COVID. So you guys could stay together. Yeah. That after the split and then after closing the coffee shop, it was a really tumultuous time. And uh, we had a few people step up and not even really know what was going on and just support the ministry. And obviously they didn't know COVID was coming and none of us did. And that really, that kept us afloat for uh, the last few years, and now we're in a lot better shape. But uh, it was definitely the, an amazing God gift at that time to just say, "I'm I'm still with you guys, and the storm is going to be hard, but I'm still with you guys." So it was it was fun to see people catch the vision, even though many people weren't catching the vision and decided to leave. So, <laughs> so at, at the high point of the previous ministry, I'll call it. You had a you had an Easter service, which had six thousand people in attendance. Yeah, five to seven. We're not really sure. It was at the Adams Center, which is the, where the University of Montana plays basketball here in town. Mm-hmm. So we actually ended up doing it three times there. Um, but the first one was um, one of the biggest. I think the biggest one. But that was actually, to, if I'm honest with you, after that Easter service is when my journey started uh, into all this. Oh, I Sorry, just think I, I think I remember when we talked before that you were sort of on the mountaintop having just had this service for where 6,000 people came for Easter, but you still somehow didn't feel like you were where you needed to be or wanted to be spiritually. No. And I, I yeah, I think that's a, it's almost like when, when God gives you everything you think you want even though you say you're doing it for God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was the moment. That actually was the moment. It was after Easter. We baptized 180 people at the Easter service at the Adams Center where they play basketball. I mean, Missoula's never seen anything like that. And 
everyone else was super pumped up and I was, I was excited about it, but that next week I was just, I was miserable. I was just miserable and I couldn't figure out why. Like I, and I kept blaming Satan, you know, like the evil trying to come against us and all that. And there were some things that happened at that event, but I got on my porch and I just said, Lord is like, is this it? Like, is this it? You know, like we've reached, there's, there's no bigger place in Montana. We can do this service. And Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't sit right with me. Like the, the, this should have been the greatest moment of our church life. And for many people it was, but I started realizing even, you know, we baptized 180 people and I didn't know who they were. Like, I didn't know their names. I didn't know anything. And that, that didn't sit well with me either. For the first time in my ministry, I was just like, are these, are people just tally marks in evangelicalism? Is that what they are? Like, and yes, in many cases they, they were. And so I had to repent of that. And I sat on my porch and just said, Lord, like, why do I feel this way? And he just walked me through this process that there, there's something bigger out there, even if it doesn't mean bigger in size, you know, cause that's just our American Western worldview that in order for something to be successful, it has to have a lot of people and it has to look right, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, that just, God just kind of started bringing me out of that. And I could, this is a long conversation about what happened there, but I just told God, I said, Jesus, I want to know truth. I want to know truth. And I, it's one of those moments, probably 10 times in my Christian faith where I heard it just directly and instantly right after I asked. And he said to me, I will tell you, but it's going to cost you. And, and I didn't know what that meant. And of course mm-hmm. it's my, my, my Peter moment, right? Like, Oh yeah, I'll yeah. follow you anywhere. And I'll, nothing's going to happen. And, so I did. I said, I follow you anywhere. And I, I laid down my evangelicalism. I laid down my uh, Americanism. I, I literally laid down everything at the feet of Jesus and said, this is yours. So do with it as you wish. Take us on this journey and whatever that looks like. But I can tell you, I did not, nothing crossed my, universalism didn't cross my mind when I thought of that. That wasn't what I was thinking. That wasn't what I was seeking. It just wasn't. And I read Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy right after that. And yeah, that was, you know that's it. You know Brian Zahn's story. Yeah, because we interviewed Zahn a few years ago, and he said yeah, the same, same thing, and same he, exact story. Yeah, so I don't know what it is. And I've heard that from other people too, not just Brian Zahn and myself. So I don't know what it is with that book, but yeah, I remember you, reading. I remember reading that book, and the thing that impressed me about it was he was just very clear about the message of the good news of the kingdom of God, which is now present and right. that Jesus is inviting us to come into the reality and to live that reality and to live there. And he just presented that so clearly. It's very, just very inspiring. Absolutely. And it's that he's an interesting cat because, you know, he's at Dallas theological seminary. And when you read his stuff, it's pretty clear he was a closet universalist and he actually got asked one time, if he was a universalist and he just kind of says, I don't think so. <laughs> like that's how he said it. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting that that book, it, it, that, that book was inspired in a way like for people that his whole breakdown of the Beatitudes was incredible. And that was the thing is I had been preaching the good news uh, or a partial good news. <laughs> um, <laughs> And a lot of people were coming to faith, but it just became all about getting people saved out of hell. Like it was just, 
if we can just save people out of hell, then that's the main mission. And so <laughs> it was working. We were doing that. And it was just kind of like, yeah, look, just get them saved. Just get them saved. Just get them saved. Just get them saved. And that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure because then you're, you're setting this expectation for the church, which we did uh, with baptisms and salvations and all that. And that kind of set this precedent that that is what it looks like when God moves. Like, that's it. And so then if we'd have a baptism and only five people got baptized instead of 30, people started thinking something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's when I start. I mean, I just really started looking at my whole view of ministry and I'm like, wow, we have set this stage now that unless people see something crazy happening, then mm-hmm. God's not there. <laughs> and, and I started realizing that that is kind of typical evangelicalism. It just is like you have to prove that God is with you by baptisms and all kinds of stuff. And it was just a pressure that I no longer felt a desire to have. Like you said, at this point, you're just realizing that something's off. Something's not focused the way it should be. You read Dallas Willard's book and you get some real strong inspiration about from his exegesis of the Beatitudes and kind of discovering the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so that begins a journey and you start thinking, thinking a little more differently about things. Is that fair? That's very fair. I must say too, though, it wasn't Dallas Willard's book. I had seen this stuff in the Bible the whole time I'd been reading it. And you almost just talk yourself out of it. Like that, that can't mean what it means, you know, like Mm -hmm. it, it is God's will that all should come to repentance and full knowledge of the truth. And you read that and you're, you kind of just say, well, that's cute. That's awawesome that God wants that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's like a move on. Yeah. I remember, you know, you can, you can sort of think of, well, yeah, sure. Parents want their kids' rooms to be clean. Parents want lots of things they don't get. And so when I was reading it through that lens, that's just how I would, you know, that's how I would, that's how I would see that. Yeah. Well, I mean, later on, of course, I started thinking that, rethinking all of that. But so what you're saying is you're starting to see some passages that you're not wanting to kind of ignore anymore. And you're saying, what what if I give full weight to these some of these passages that I've read, but I've kind of discarded? Yeah. And even we always think it's just the New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with this stuff. I mean, you read the book of Isaiah and... It's disaster redemption, disaster redemption, disaster redemption. And Mm -hmm. it's so often we just focus on the disaster part and that's what we get hung up on. And so that's Dallas Willard gave me an ability to actually say it's okay to think about this stuff and pursue this stuff. So again, I was definitely not pursuing universalism. That didn't even cross my mind. And in fact, when Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins, I bought that book to prove it wrong. Uh, that that's the whole reason I bought that book. John Piper sends that tweet out that says goodbye, Rob Bell before he had right. read the book, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so I read that book. I was on a plane to Vegas for one of my best friends, bachelor parties while they're all getting drunk. I'm reading Rob Bell's love wins in the back of the plane, taking notes on why this is stupid and why this is dumb and all that stuff. <laughs> so 10 years later, I read it again. And it was, uh, and I'm not promoting Rob Bell per se, but I am saying he made some arguments there that were tough to kind of combat. And then I started realizing, why do I want to combat this? And that was a whole, that was one book. And then again, Brian Zond and those guys, they weren't talking about universalism. 
they were just talking about what the early church believed. And I had never heard that because I went to a denominational school that was Calvinist for sure. They didn't come right out and say it, but every single book, everything was Calvinism. So Mm -hmm. um, that definitely, even if you don't claim Calvinism, most people don't realize how affected they are by Reformed theology. And so when I actually realized Reformed theology has only been around for about 800 years, that was a big one for me. Like, wait a minute, I spent $30,000 to get a master's degree on something that's only been around for 800 years. And my school never talked about the early church fathers, ever. They never talked about them. And they cherry picked a few Augustine quotes and stuff like that because it kind of fit the norm. But yeah. so Zond and Jerzak and those guys got me uh, into looking at the early church fathers. And that when I started doing that, I realized that I don't believe this really is about universalism for me personally. It was more about penal substitution atonement theory. That was the one that really, when I said this doesn't make sense anymore, that's Mm -hmm. what sent me down all these other lanes to check out. And really all it did was just broaden my lens of the world church, of early church, all that stuff. And so it was really penal substitutionary atonement. That's the thing that sent me into a whole different direction when I no longer believed that. Okay, so penal substitutionary atonement is just the idea that God is punishing Jesus instead of us for sin. For sin. And yeah. so if we get underneath Jesus, then Jesus has taken the punishment, our punishment for us, but then the people that aren't under Jesus... God has to still punish them because he's holy and his wrath has to express itself. Yeah. And that just is logically incoherent for me. What's weird is when I preached it, even it never really clicked with me. I was grateful that God beat his own son instead of me. Right. Mm -hmm. In a weird twisted way, my mind felt like that was loving. Um, But now I, I just can't logically say one. It's just for me, if I believe in the Trinity, that Jesus is God, I don't think God was punishing himself to appease himself. That just doesn't make sense to me. And secondly, you can't separate the Trinity. So to say that God was punishing his son without also feeling that punishment, it that just doesn't line up. And finally, the reason I dumped it was, as you just said, those who are under Jesus, everyone's under Jesus and the cross was for everybody. And so... To say that God took his own wrath, the father took his own wrath out on his son, but it really didn't accomplish anything because we still have to repent. We still have to be disciplined and either, either it took his wrath or it didn't. Yeah. So, so what, what did penal substitution actually do? So I started logically going down that path being like, yeah, thank God he took Thank God he took his own wrath out on himself, but it still sucks for all these other people because he still has a reserve tank of wrath or something like, right? That he's stored yeah. up. Well, I've actually heard some a couple of interesting things. One, I heard somebody that actually got to Christian universalism because they thought that was where the penal substitutionary theory actually led. Okay, so God has God doesn't have any more wrath because pulled it out, poured it out all on Jesus, and so. Ultimately, that means all will be 
all will be forgiven. And then I heard one person say, okay, well. I can handle that. I can handle that. All right. If if that's where you believe (laughs) penal substitution takes you, then that's fine. Then I I heard uh, uh, somebody else say one time, well, if the uh, penalty for sin is eternal conscious torment and Jesus is supposed to take the penalty for our sin, then Jesus should experience eternal conscious torment because that's the penalty. Forever. Yeah. Paul Young says that. Yeah, it's like if I if you said if you know like if it's like okay you got a you got a a jail term for twenty years and I say no what I'll, you know what I'll serve that for you on your behalf well then right. I would have done it but if you got the penalty eternal conscious torment and I say you know what I'm going to serve that for you yeah well then I guess that's what I would need to do yeah so a lot of there's been a lot of rethinking uh, to me as I've watched evangelicals or people with evangelical backgrounds like yourself. What hap- What I see is you start questioning the eternal, we start questioning penal substitutionary theory, and then also start looking into the context of the early church and some of the judgment language and around yeah, the, destruction what they meant of, by it. Mm-hmm. And the destruction of Jerusalem. And you learn that Jesus was probably more talking about the end of an age rather than the end of the whole world space-time continuum. And then once that happens, people start rethinking things. That was kind of Brad Jerzak's journey. And then so he he starts re- rethinking all of that. So did you read uh, Brad Jerzak's Her Gates Will Never Be Shut as part of your journey? I did, yeah. And But the, the, the Universalist books came way later. Like it, came okay. like, it came like two and a half, three years after I started studying the early church fathers and penal substitution and church history and all that stuff. So again, I, I was not on this journey to become a universalist or ultimate reconciliationist or whatever we want to call it. Uh, mm-hmm. I was on this journey because I wanted to know truth and I could no longer play the evangelical game. That's, that was the reason I went on this journey. But what was interesting is it, it still was penal substitution that, you know, I mentioned a church split earlier. That was the one that, man, I, people, I didn't realize how, how dear people held that theory. Um, but the sad part was with everything is, I mean, one of the, one of the pastors who left during the split, he was the one sending me rethinking hell podcasts. I, that's a podcast. They're annihilationists. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. ever listened to it, but yeah. So the, he was sending me Rethinking Hell podcasts, and we were having these wonderful conversations about it. And then uh, some of the other guys, it, they started pressuring and, I mean, and just calling this dangerous. And then the heresy word came out, and it just it just stopped the whole conversation. It was awful. But that's when I picked up Her Gates Will Never Be Shut and Jesus Undefeated by Keith Giles. And then the one that is my favorite out of all of them is Christ, the conqueror of hell. Um, I honestly can't say the author's name. He's Greek Orthodox. Um, yeah. It's like metro- metropolitan something, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, and a more Christ-like, a more Christ-like God. That was huge by Brad Jerzak. Uh, Paul Young's lies. We believe about God. That mm-hmm. was big. But again, all of that stuff wouldn't matter if there wasn't a massive group of early church fathers who believed in ultimate reconciliation. Like it's, that was the clincher for me when I finally started being like, wow, the way they describe the actual finished work of Jesus Christ, 
that is what sent me down that lane because either Jesus accomplished what he said he did or he didn't. And and I, I finally had to just start asking those tough questions. Like when Jesus says it is finished, is it or isn't it right? Like when Jesus says, I'm going to take all judgment that, you know, as Moses lifted the serpent in the, in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. And so I start, I started bypassing like, trying to figure out a sermon and just being like, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, you go back to Moses. He he holds up this snake, this serpent, which is now our medical logo, right? Right. And what did the people have to do? They just look had to it. look at it. That's yeah. all they had to do was look at it. So Jesus is making a clear statement there, a clear statement. So then right after that, he goes, I, the son of man, will be lifted up and all judgment will be taken unto him. All judgment. So I just started seeing those words, like either he did or he didn't. Mm -hmm. And I just, I finally, it was almost hard to preach because I, I pretty much was going through this journey in my sermons. And the sad part was my friend, people were loving it. Peter Hyatt talks about that in your, his podcast with you. Yeah. Like people were into it. It was making sense to them. They knew it was true. And then a bunch of people at our church started causing fear and panic. And so what it did is it it just crushed the conversation at our church. It crushed it for a season. And that's when I knew that this is a whole different area of Christianity that I I wasn't aware of. I really mm-hmm. wasn't aware of it. Like I had known Christians got into some arguments and obviously with all the denominations and stuff, but I never realized how vicious they could be over theology. I just, I thought the, the witch hunts of the 1800s were over, <laughs> but I guess mm-hmm. they're not. And so that was, that was, that was a, a wake up call for me to realize, wow, people are really serious about this. And if anything, it pushed me even further to it to be like, okay, well, if, if they're already mad at me, I might as well keep exploring this. Well, I started looking, when I started running into some of this, I eventually looked at these people as being spiritually traumatized, that they had been mm-hmm. given a fear-based gospel and raised in that. And I, I when I say that it, it, when I talk about Christian fear, I like to say that the the hell bone is connected to the rapture bone, and the way <laughs> the way it works is, you get to be okay. You you may think to yourself, well, okay, I'm I'm I believe, so I'm probably going to go to heaven after I die, but maybe I need to I need to ramp my game up a little bit more to make sure that I'm I'm on fire. So, because if Jesus comes back, he's only going to take the people that are you know really. He'll spit the lukewarm ones out. So he's only going to take the he's going only going to take the ones that are really on fire. So if I've got some wrong doctrine, or if I'm hanging out with some of the wrong people, maybe I need to make sure that I am pure, I am sanctified, I got the right doctrine, or or Jesus isn't going to take me when he comes back, and then I'll have to go through the tribulation, and then I'll probably have to get my head chopped off, right, uh, in order to make it into heaven. So I need to, I need to show that I'm standing strong against Satan and against his wicked ways and against the deceptions and the lies that are going to come at the end times. And then, well, what's one of the what's one of the lies that gets identified as part of the end times? Well, this doctrine of universalism 
they'll right. don't put that there. Then, then that they, they can kind of trot out a charge and they say, "Oh, well, it was condemned. It's been condemned as a heresy in the history of the church. So it's definitely a, it's definitely heresy, and anybody who believes it is going to hell forever. And especially the people that teach it are going to go to hell forever. And if that's you know, if that's where they're coming from, you know, I can really understand where what I'm talking about would show up on their radar screen. That's you know, like holy cow." I've but doesn't a, that just prove doesn't that when people act like that, which I have before, so I'm included in those people, it just proves that people think their theology saves them. It that their Jesus doesn't actually save them. Getting it right saves them. And you know, if like getting that's getting the right atonement theory and getting the right health theory. And when did the funny thing is when did Jesus ever say that? When did Jesus ever say if you do not believe in eternal conscious torment? You're going there. He never said that. And I will say that about penal substitution as well. When did Jesus ever say, I'm going to the cross so my father can kick my butt so he doesn't kick your butt? When did Jesus ever affirm penal substitution, right? He just didn't. And so what's funny is those same people who, and I think they love Jesus. I really do. But I just think they they prove to me over and over that they think what they that Jesus is up there waiting for us to get all of this theology right before he saves us. <laughs> and to me, that proves we don't think Jesus actually saves us. And it also proves penal substitution is false because he accomplished absolutely nothing on the cross. We still have to repent. We still have to do the right things. We still have to have the right doctrine. Why did he have to die? Why didn't Jesus just come and say, here's the right doctrine. Believe that. If you don't believe this and do this, my father's going to send you to hell forever. Like, why, why didn't he do that and skip all the torture part on the cross? Like, why didn't he skip all that part? If, if, if your theology saves you, no, Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you because his name is God is salvation. That's the name of Yeshua is God is salvation. So, you know, to your your point there, David, is, yeah, you can you can read Revelation, and it still blows my mind that we're trying to make actual doctrines out of the book of Revelation at this point. <laughs> um, but I'll counter that, right? Fine. You think I'm going to hell? That's, that's kind of showing your cards on what you actually believe saves you, and it's not Jesus. It's a certain doctrine. It's a certain thought process. It's, you know. It's not Jesus. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the the stages that you went through to get to this understanding. So, when was it that you that you studied you studied the early church? It was in studying the early church fathers that that's when you uh, thought, okay, this is really this is really there. And it's in the, it's it's scriptural. It's in the history of the of the early church. I know that when I, you know, when I started doing that, then I had to then work through that controversy about the the Fifth Ecumenical Council, and was yeah. it in fact uh, condemned as a heresy? Now, as a, I'm, you know, I'm on the Protestant side of things, and so for us, you know, what an ancient church council said is not really determinative because we're supposed to be by the scripture, you know, scripture alone. Yeah, and yeah. so and so if it's scripture alone, then why get so you know, well, I get so wrapped up in early church fathers and medieval church councils. But it's right. funny that the scripture alone crowd, in my experience, 
whenever I start talking about Christian universalism, they'll say, oh, it got it. It was declared a heresy at this yeah. medieval church council. And then I want to say, since when Anathema. did medieval? Yeah. Well, since did since when did medieval church councils show up on your radar screen to determine what it is that you believe? And by the way, if you're going to set your beliefs by some of the medieval church councils, you, you're going to have a few more things in your belief bag that you that you. <laughs> and as a matter yeah. of fact, where the where the medieval church was at that time, if you would have come along with your Protestant beliefs at that time, they would have condemned you as a heretic. As a matter of fact, absolutely, absolutely. Martin Martin Luther was considered was condemned as a heretic by that. So, and then once I looked into it, and I've done episodes, uh, I've done episodes on this, but this this doctrine has always been controversial, and it's always been used as almost a foil. And so that was kind of what happened with Origen in, yeah. in his memory. And that Fifth Ecumenical Council, Justinian, was trying to just, he was trying to make, he was trying to revive the empire. We're going to have one law. He draw the laws together. We're going to have one, we're going to have one belief, one faith. And he wanted that eternal conscious torment doctrine to be front and center. And he, and there were some, that church council was really, messy in lots of different kinds of ways historically and they denounced it they they denounced it right after not far long after that in some ways well (laughs) because the pope didn't want to go the pope didn't want to go they had to drag the pope there i mean it wasn't a legitimate council there's a lot of i'll say the word hijinks there's a lot of hijinks uh, going on with that with all of that but what it did is it succeeded leaving this impression in western christianity that the only acceptable doctrine was eternal conscious torment. And so then, you know, for, you know, a thousand years or so or more, nobody was even able to question this stuff. It was eternal conscious torment. You couldn't even think about annihilationism. It was funny that you're talking about one of your friends in evangelical, in an evangelical church was sending you stuff about annihilationism because that would have been considered a heresy too by that same, Mm -hmm. you know, by that kind of, by that same criteria. Right. Well, yeah, so I totally agree with you. I think John Bear, everyone should listen to the John Bear podcast that you did with him because he he's the guy And when it comes to origin and that council. And first off, I totally agree with you on one sense that the same people who will use that council as like the litmus test, they should be reading the Nicene Creed then every church on in Sunday if that's, if that's the group they're going to go with. They should read the Nicene Creed on Sunday. Like, that was the staple. <laughs> that is the mission statement that should be put on our websites, right? From the mm-hmm. early church, but they'll even trash that. So I mean, that uh, quick story they, uh, after I did a series on hell, um, I did a four part series on hell. You can go to our website and check it out. It's called hellology. And I just laid it out there, all the different views. And I said, you can believe any of these and be a part of this church. I wasn't forcing anybody. I wasn't and at the time. I wasn't even like a full blown, like universalist, I guess, but I just kind of laid it out there. Right after that, another pastor in town brought in a guest speaker to prove that I'm a heretic and that Paul Young's a heretic and that basically universalism is heresy. And they brought this guy in and I, he had to, I, I listened to him. I didn't go, but I listened to him. And basically this guy had to destroy the creeds. He said the creeds and the councils were all messed up. Like they, you know, they were run by the government and all kinds of stuff. So, but then he says, Origin is a heretic, and it was he was deemed that at this council. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening to this guy going, okay, 
So you're cherry picking this one council as fact, but then the night you think the Nicene Creed was bogus, you know, and I ended up sending all his sermons to like real theologians and the, even and non-universalists even. And they were like, this is totally bogus. Like, this is not true what this guy's saying. But, you know, I think when, when you want to disprove something, you're going to find somebody to try to disprove it. But I just find it interesting that the same people have to throw away like a thousand years of church history. Guys who died for their faith, they're the heretics. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we in our comfortable homes and air conditionings, you know, us deep theological philosophers, <laughs> we got this all nailed. But Gregory of Nyssa was a dummy. You know, it just it just doesn't mix well with me. And, and by the way, Gregory of Nyssa was a f- universalist for sure. And mm-hmm. he was named the father of fathers at the seventh ecumenical council. I believe. So yes. that's not the end of the story. And I agree with John Bear. Yeah, it's easy to pick on a guy 300 years after he's dead, you know, like Origen. And I don't know how you can read Origen and not see that guy loved Jesus. And that guy, he literally died for his faith. I mean, he got the crap kicked out of him and ended up dying from the wounds. But I just, I don't understand that viewpoint. And I think it comes really from our culture that if you can just brand somebody something like a liberal or a conservative, or if you can just brand something, somebody something, then you can destroy all their other work, mm-hmm. you know? And so I don't, I don't do that with, with people either. Like I don't read Piper anymore. John MacArthur and Piper, those guys just bore me, you know? But Tim Keller, he's a five-point Calvinist. I thoroughly enjoy him. I'm not going to throw away all his work because I disagree with his Calvinist viewpoints on that. But it seems the universalists don't get that same grace on the other side. And I just, I read Origin, I read Gregory of Nisa and those guys, and then I read something that some of these new guys are putting out, and I'll take Origin and Gregory of Nisa all day when it comes to the spiritual depth of knowing Christ. And so just... just I find it really interesting that those councils, you know, Constantine and Justin, uh, Justinian, mm-hmm. you don't think that those guys had some sort of motive to try to bring the church and the government together. It's proven now Constantine basically wanted to be the head of the church, you know? And so I think it's interesting that we take Justinian was like a pagan. He, he, he was not a great guy. And we take those guys as the ones that we should look to as what's heresy and what's not heresy. It just, that doesn't line up with me. Well, okay, we've been talking about, I, I guess when you make this movement towards Christian universalism, yeah, there's going to be some people that are going to call you a heretic. Uh, there are going to be people that are going to be really, I don't know, scandalized by this, upset about it. So there is, you know, there, and, it, it, and I understand we're in a tumultuous time. Right. Um, but then... There's this other side of it, and you've you've had these experiences, I know, because I've had them, is when I get to t- sit down with somebody and say, you know, there's a, there's a better way of thinking about God, and it's in the history of the church, it's in the history of the tradition, and it's in the scriptures too, right. and let me, let me show this to you. I did that one time in a Sunday school class. We had some visitors. And I just kind of started talking about this. I didn't talk it, talk about it, you know, in some kind of real emotional way or like I'm getting ready to, you know, I alone have now seen something. Mm-hmm. I just kind of tell, told her that I just kind of told the story and about these beliefs and about where they came about and some passages of scripture and how you could put that together to get to this understanding. And this person had grown up in a real strong Calvinist background and 
I didn't know that because I didn't had known them. All, all that happened was this woman just started crying. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a little bit awkward, like right in the middle of the Sunday school class. And she, she finally, she regained her composure and we asked her what was going on. And she said, I always knew that there must be a better way of looking at the Bible, but nobody had ever showed it to me before. Mm -hmm. And she said, I always knew that God was better than what they were telling me. Right. And this, this person it's like they all they knew in their heart what was right. But when I was able to tell them that it is legitimately within the history of the Christian tradition, and I can show them scriptures and early church fathers and, you know, great theologians and great theology about all of this. I mean, they just it was it was it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. And, it, you know, I mean, I kind of experienced some of those moments internally when I was going through my own process on this. But then just to see how it how it would could light up somebody else. And I've had people contact me that they listen to the podcast because it helps them. They're dealing with some mental, mental health issues from being traumatized by all of this. And just mm -hmm. hearing these conversations is a big part of their healing. And I think, man, what you're doing, you know, I'm, I'm putting out this podcast, but you're putting community together. I mean, you're saying, yeah, Hey, come on, we can, we can live this together. We can, you know, we can be friends. And you're not saying like, Hey, I'm pastor Scott, but you can't talk to me directly. I've got 27 uh, associate pastors and you can talk, yeah. you can make an appointment with one of them. You know, you're, you're available. You're putting yourself, you're making yourself really vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there. I think that what you're doing is really, really wonderful and amazing. I'm so excited for you. And I, I want everybody in Missoula <laughs> to understand what you're doing and people outside of Missoula uh, to be able to get connected. And you said you have people that are kind of doing that, right? I mean, they're, they're finding you as a, kind of a pastor ministry person to connect to, even if they don't live in your, you know, cause I get people to contact me. I, 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 I'm believing all of this, but I need some kind of church community, even if it's, you know, online, where do I go? And so right. you're a destination for that kind of thing, right? Yeah, at least a destination to be able to talk about it. And I think that's the difference that I will see is like, I am still open to eternal conscious torment, if I'm honest. Like, I, I don't want to be so close to say that this isn't a possibility because I do, there are things in scripture for sure. When you actually look at Genesis to Revelation, universalism is a million times over in scripture compared to <laughs> eternal conscious torment. But I do want to be a space, and Zootown wants to be a space where you allow people to walk through that journey, even to think about it and to talk about it. And for too long in church, that has just been squashed. So uh, Brad Jerzak always says, self-discovery is best discovery. And he doesn't mean discovering yourself. It means when you yeah. see it, when you get it. And so that was me. Is, and again, it didn't, start, it didn't start going after this. But what I realized too, this was a big one for me, was all Western evangelicals go to is the law of Moses. It's always the law of Moses. The first covenant was with Abraham. And that is the world covenant, not just the right. Jewish covenant. And we miss that. And so when I started looking at Abraham and, you know, I take people to that and I'll be like, I was in the middle of this trying to wonder what was going on. And I went to Mexico with my family on a trip. And we're on the beach, and we live in Montana. We don't got beaches. We got snow, right? So we're on this beach. <laughs> we're on this beach, and the Lord says to me, how much sand is that? 
And I was kind of like, what? He's like, how much sand is that? And I'm like, I don't know. And then my mind instantly went to Abraham as the sand of the seashore. So will your offspring be and the stars of the heaven. How many stars are out there? You know? So I'm like in the middle of this journey, I was like, wow, okay, that's, that's a sign for sure. And so I always take people to that and, and even be like, well, what is, what did God mean right there by how many stars, how many, how much sand, you know, we've mm-hmm. been told that that much sand is going to be in eternal conscious torment forever, right? That's not what he told Abraham. And so we, we, we want to do this more gently too, like, and just letting people walk on that journey. But it's, it's, you know, it, like you tell that story about that woman, when you and I talk, David, and I talk to other people like this or like you, you can feel the life. You can feel mm-hmm. the life. You can feel Christ. And Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So make that the opposite. If you're not free, you're not in the truth. That, that's, the, that's what he means. So this has helped free me and free you and free others. Because what it really did is once you see it, you can't not see it. You just can't not see it. And once you start, all people have to do is just see it. And once they see it, the whole Bible explodes with it. It just mm-hmm. explodes with it. And then you let them talk it out. And it's, I love talking to people who are in their 60s and 70s. And they'll be like, Scotty, man, you're telling us stuff that we've believed our entire life, but weren't allowed to believe it. That's the main thing I get from people. And I'm like, well, I'm just telling you something God's been telling you for a long time. I'm not <laughs> yeah. taking the credit here. And I know you've had those similar experiences and I talked, you know, you know, Jerzak and all those guys. It's like, it does bring life. And you know what doesn't bring life? What doesn't bring life is just the constant bashing of the law. And I don't know about you, but are you just so kind of bored with what Christians are talking about? It's just like, everything's about transgender. Everything's about homosexuality. Every, I mean, everything is like these rabbit trails to get us off the greater kingdom and God's grace and mercy, you know? And so I think universalism, at least being able to talk about it is important because it gets us off the norm of just death, destruction, all that stuff. It gets us focused on the greater vision of God, you know, and the greater vision of his redemption. And what brings more life than that? Like wherever you are now, God's not going to keep you there. (laughs) That, That brings me life and brings me joy. Yeah, it flips the it flips the convers it flips the conversation over, and I like the I like the way you're positioning it. You're not saying, okay, at Zootown Church, you have to agree with me on my universalism, or no. you can't, or you can't be my friend, and you can't come to church. You can't come to church here. You're you're not yeah. saying that, but what you're doing is saying, you know, I'm. I'm going on a journey. We're all going on this spiritual journey in Christ together. All I can ever do is share the best of what I understand with you. Mm-hmm. But then you have to take that and you have to think about it and you have to make this your own personal journey. And so is is that a fair way of assessing what you're doing? Yeah. I And I learned this from Jerzak. I, I got tired of him not answering my questions. <laughs> <And finally, laughs> Finally, I realized what he was doing there. And that's a rabbi trick, right? Jesus asked, a rabbi would rarely actually answer a question. They would just, you know, give another question. And yeah, so that's, that's my approach with this is just letting people walk through it. And it's, it's really interesting watching people hit a wall. They always hit this wall and then it goes one way or the other. Like they either get really upset and they, and this, this is human nature though. When God is taking us someplace new, 
we always want to go to a safe place to and put walls up around that place because we feel we have this sense of control over our marriages, our money, all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what I've seen is either people go full board into this and even if they don't necessarily believe it, they're like, no, it's there and it's definitely not heresy, you know. Or they go the complete opposite extreme and they become heretic hunters and they become slanderers and you know, that's just that's just how it goes. It's usually one or the other. But when people get it and they and it's life giving to them, that is a great joy for me too. Because I can honestly tell you this between the atonement and the view of hell, it saved my faith. It literally saved my faith being able to discuss these things in a healthy way. And so I want other people to have that. And no matter where they land, I want them to know your theology does not save you. (laughs) Jesus saves you. That's the main thing I keep trying to bring home to people is wherever you land in this hell conversation, Mm -hmm. nowhere does it say your view of hell sends you to hell. And I I just can't even imagine that, David. Can you imagine standing before Jesus and he's like, yeah, you thought I was too big and you thought I was too good and you thought I was too merciful. So now I'm going to prove that by sending you to hell. (laughs) I mean, it's just... I used to tell people that ironically, I can kind of imagine, you know, if it turns out that God really is the type of God that sends people to hell forever for for bad theology. And if it does, you know, if that does turn out to be true, that I could imagine, you know, that I would be down there in hell sitting on a bench and somebody would come up next to me and they would say, well, how did you get here? I would say, well, ironically. Yeah, right. (laughs) Because I believe God didn't do, wouldn't, being love, wouldn't do this, you know, wouldn't do this type of thing. We just laugh about it because it just seems, once you start putting it that way, it does seem crazy. Sometimes I put, you know, I'll I'll tell people, tell me what are the things you have to believe in order to be a Christian? And they'll list, they'll list a whole bunch of beliefs off. and, and, And I'll say, well, there's still one big one that you haven't listed off that you have to believe. And they'll say, what? I mean, I've listed all of them. And I'll say, well, I mean, apparently one of the things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian is that God will not save everyone in Christ. (laughs) You know, because the whole point of Christianity is that God is sending a bunch of people to hell forever. Winners and losers, winners and losers. Yeah. And so this whole point of doing this is to not be one of the ones that goes to hell forever. But that is just so baked into the cake. Like people don't even realize that that's some kind of essential that you have to believe. And so once I once I can kind of surface that and say, well, yeah. what if the what if there's a positive message, and it has to do with the presence of the kingdom of God right now and eternal life or fullness of life right now? And and what if that's the main emphasis in the judgment? What if the judgment language of the New Testament is just about, or Jesus' judgment language is just about. What are the consequences if we decide we don't want fullness of life or we want to walk a path of destruction? Where does that ultimately lead? Well, there's been a long discussion about that in the history of the church. Uh, But this idea that it leads to eternal conscious torment, that was never really the majority view in the early centuries of the church. And and, and it's really hard to even see it unless somebody is telling you that it's there. It's hard to really even see it in the... New Testament, it's certain, there are certain places that you can look and find it. But anyway, once I kind of give people a freedom to do that, another thing I tell them is that it's very understandable that we would all believe this because there is this thing called Western Christendom, which basically became Western civilization. And some form of that all washed up on shore in America in some different 
way. And a lot of those people were taking those ideas and trying to refine them or making, make them, you know, better or whatever. But that we kind of got this Western Christendom, but there was this whole Eastern church that looked back on the early centuries of the church in a very different way. And there's like several million of these people in the world. And, you know, maybe, yeah, 350 million. Why don't we check in with our Eastern uh, brothers and sisters and how they look back on the, the early centuries of the church and some of the things that they see and how they think about it. And I say like, for instance, in the Eastern church, they're not going around thinking about, oh, I need so much. I need to be saved from going to hell forever. The thing that's on their mind is how can I, how can I participate in this theosis? How can I participate in, in the life of God becoming fully present in me right now in this lifetime? And that's their focus. I mean, what a more powerful, holistic kind of idea about what it means world to be changing. Christian. That's yeah. a world-changing viewpoint. Yeah. And t- so tell me a little bit about what what it was like you for you to find out. It was like, oh, wait a second. It's like, I got a whole other Christian family over here. And for some reason, when they look at the family photo book, the Christian family photo book, they look at it in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was uh, another great book that, changed me it was called the roots of christian mysticism um it's i had no clue because i grew up being told catholics are of the devil you know orthodoxy is boring like they're just religious they you know basically the liturgy the liturgy is just this religious thing they do (laughs) and -hmm. i always find that funny you know basically every service is the same and i find that funny when evangelicals say that because Every evangelical service is song, announcement, two songs, you know, (laughs) (laughs) preacher rouse them up and then he has has them make a decision before they leave or something, you know, that's usually how it Uh goes. And so that's how I was raised. Uh, My grandpa, actually, my grandpa came around to the Catholics before he died. But uh, when you're raised that way, you don't even think about that other stuff. You're like, well, they're just wrong, right? And we're the faith handed down to us. I mean, we are. And so when I started studying that, uh, the roots of Christian mysticism and just uh, just the early church fathers in general, I realized the what went into creating the church in the first place. Like the thought that, I mean, they didn't even have a co- cohesive thing on the Trinity for like 300 years. Mm-hmm. And you know what I say about that? The church did pretty good. You know, like they didn't have a Bible for 400 years. Everyone was illiterate. So how did they learn? Well, Jesus said the spirit will lead you into all truth, the spirit. And so that opened my eyes to realize a lot of the sola scriptura stuff that I was taught really said, really means sola, my interpretation of scriptura, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and that, that was when I started looking at like how the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodoxy in particular, before the split with the Catholic Church, but they were all they were all buddies, you know. They disagreed, but they were buddies. When I started looking at how they disagreed, that is what attracted me to Eastern Orthodoxy. It's not people think like it's because I agree with everything they do in practice. No, I don't. It's how they disagree and maintain a unity of the faith with Jesus Christ as the center point of that. And uh, one of my my mentor, Father Jarmus, he's a Orthodox priest in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he just preached here at Zootown. And he, it was an amazing sermon. It was just awesome. And so many people were like, wow, we'd never even heard the gospel presented that way. Mm-hmm. 
what's funny is he's like, this is how the gospel's always been presented, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so it's, but him and I have disagreements, but it's the way they disagree. And he said something to me once, he quoted Augustine. And I know he's not a huge Augustine fan and we'll get into Augustine later, but yeah, <laughs> he kept, he kept quoting Augustine and I was like, father, why do you keep quoting Augustine? If you know, he was an error in a lot of ways, he goes, well, truth is truth. Truth is truth. And I thought, what a great answer. Like what a great answer. And for so long, you know, we've been told that this denomination is the truth. And, you know, that's why we all have to have a mission statement on our website to prove like, Hey, we're buddies with all the other churches, but this is why we're right. You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just love how the early church is like, all right, we're going to write out one creed. Uh, No mention of hell in there, except that God's going to judge the living and the dead. That's all we know. That's all we know. And I appreciate that about that type of theology and that viewpoint of Christianum. It just, it changed how I walk with God. It changed how I view people. It changed how I view the church. It changed because I was almost ready to give up on the church. Mm-hmm. And then I would have been like everybody else. And, you know, that's God's bride. At the end of the day, that's God's bride. And so Eastern Orthodoxy really saved my faith in the sense that it I, they gave me permission to talk about these types of things. And like you said, I... You mentioned 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and how when you start looking at a lot of those passages, I really don't believe a lot of those are talking about hell anymore. I think it's talking about like Gehenna and this massive destruction that seems like hell that was going to happen in 70 AD, and it did. It did. And so those things, Eastern Orthodoxy has been way ahead of the curve on, like way Mm -hmm. ahead of the curve. And I didn't even realize, like, you know, John Mark studied under Paul, Barnabas, and Peter. Pretty big name dudes. I'd like to go to that seminary. I don't know about you. (laughs) So John Mark goes to Alexandria and starts this church. And supposedly, according to an Amazon Prime documentary I watched, his bones are still buried there. And it's one of the oldest churches in the world. That is where this school of thought came out of. Gregory of Nazianzen, Origen, all those guys came out of the theological seminary that John Mark started, supposedly. So that was big for me to be like, okay, John Mark obviously knew what he was talking about, and he, he wrote the book of Mark, and this is where a lot of this thought is coming from, is this school. So how can we call this heresy? How can we call this wrong? And I just, that was very attractive to me to be able to see a guy who quotes Augustine, who definitely, you know, double predestination. <laughs> the last 15 years of Augustine's life were pretty rough when you actually look at it, but cause he just got caught up in his own ideology. So he kept twisting things and stuff. But when you see they accepted Augustine and they accepted, you know, even St. Jerome, who was known to be kind of a bully and, <laughs> you know, like I yeah. appreciated that they kept the unity of the faith in the church. And I appreciate that about them. And they, you know, Gregory of Nyssa is the father of fathers and he's a universalist. He just is. And I find it very odd that they would name someone a heretic and the father of fathers at the same time. That just, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, one of the things that I've been, I've been trying to think about, what what are sort of the, kind of the pillars of my theology? I was thinking about it recently and I was thinking, well, one strong pillar is I want it to be scriptural. And I think you and I have both found that 
you can find an awful lot of scripture that supports this. What's funny is once you once you don't start ruling it out and you start looking at it, right, all of a sudden right. you find a whole bunch of stuff. Like for instance, I found a passage in Lamentations, chapter three. Uh, I mean, it's pointed out to Thomas Talbot pointed this out in his book. But Lamentations three says that the Lord does not cast off anyone forever. Right. Okay. Well, all right. It causes grief, but his unfailing love and his mercies mean that, you know, he doesn't cast anybody off forever. Okay. And his faith lasts forever and ever. You know, how many verses like are like that in the Old Testament? And Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, you start everywhere. Yeah, so you start seeing stuff like that. And then I thought, well, second, I wanted my theology to be logical. And what I realized is that I would when I was talking to people, I would say, you know, about they won't talk to me about my beliefs. I would say, well, let's talk about grace. I would say, do you believe that grace saves alone? And they would generally say, well, yeah, we sing songs about that, you know, saved by grace alone, amazing grace that saved, you know, yeah, grace, I'm saved by grace alone. So, well, do you think God gives grace to everybody? And they'll say, yeah, God's no respecter of persons. And I said, well, do you believe some will be lost forever and, and, you know, like annihilated or eternally tormented? And they'll say, yeah, well, the Bible teaches that. So, well, okay, that's fine. It's, it's understandable that you believe all those things, but we got a logical problem there. Theology totally. needs to be logical. Totally. And so you got to give up one of those. You know, which one do you want to give up? Do you want to give up that salvation is by grace alone? Or do you want to give up that God gives grace to all? And what they generally will do is they'll say, oh, well, I thought I believe that salvation was by grace alone. But upon further reflection, I guess it isn't because I guess I don't believe that. So however it is that we put our theologies together, at least one, like sometimes I can really disagree with the Calvinist, but at least their theology is flowing. There's a logic to it. I may not like where it's going, yes. but yes. at least it's logical. And at least they're aware that they're doing theology and they're trying to work things through. And so then I, I, I wanted my, I wanted it to be scriptural, logical, but then I really wanted it to be the word I use is apostolic. I wanted to feel a connection with the apostles, with the, with the faith that was transmitted and understood in the early centuries of the church. And for me, that's contained in the, the, like the apostles and the Nicene Creed. Right. And like our church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we don't, if somebody comes to join, we don't hand them like the apostles and Nicene Creed and say, you got to check this off where you can join the church. But yeah. we do say, what I wish to say is there is a kind of apostolic ecumenical core of the Christian faith. And I really want to affirm that. And yes. what I discovered is, yeah, there's judgment, judgment. That's part of the apostolic, that there will be judgment and accountability, but it's left open as to how you want to interpret that. And in the early church, they were able to accommodate all these views. So mm -hmm. but I'm just saying, hey, why don't we just do that again? Why can't we? That was a pretty, that was pretty good. Let's just, and what, yeah. and I want to tell people, I'm, I'm trying to affirm, I want my theology to be apostolic as much as you do. I want it to affirm the core of the Christian faith as much as, which as you do. And then the final thing is I want my theology to be good, that I don't want to worship anything, any being that is not good. And I don't want to encourage anybody else to worship a being that is not good. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is where like Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, this is where their theology just shines. And uh, in modern times, David Bentley Hart, it's funny because he's brusque in many different ways. He's kind of hard edged. Mm -hmm. uh, he's super direct in the way. He, but 
what he's laser focused on is the goodness of God has to shine through in our theology from beginning to end. And so it was that it's that goodness of God, the absolute that God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. And so my theology needs to be a theology in which there is light and no darkness at all. So not even a little bit. And once I put all of that together, that just seems really, really powerful. And then I look, and, and I would also tell people, you look back at the Protestant Reformation, one of the things they said was reformed and always reforming. Right. Yeah. So, hey, let's continue reforming. They didn't think that that there was, they didn't anticipate that they had maybe solved it for all time. They wanted the Reformation to continue to reform. So why not just continue? Let's just continue the Reformation then. I agree. And I think you brought something up. I'm so happy you brought up the logic side of things, because if you didn't, I was going to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, I think that's incredibly important. And I, you know, you kind of mentioned something about Calvinism, too. It's like, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you that, like I said about Tim Keller, and I have Calvinist friends for sure. But it's really interesting to me that Calvinism and universalism are the exact same thing with just less people. That's really what it is. When you really look at it, they just can't get to the point of... because. You know, if it's grace and grace alone, sure, preach that. That's great. But I don't know if John MacArthur actually believes it's grace and grace alone. And here's why. You look at a John MacArthur study Bible. Well, I don't know about the new edited ones, whatever. But the one that I had, at the beginning of the passage, it says, or excuse me, the beginning of the Bible, it's, you know, he's got this introduction, basically. And it says, here's how you know if you're saved. And then it has like step one, step two, step three. And it's like, if you believe this part about the scriptures, uh, I'm I'm probably butchering it, but just go look at, go look at one. It's bizarre to me because he's saying it's grace and grace alone. And if God wants to save you, he's going to save you. But here's what you need to do to show and prove that you're saved. So I'm like, I don't even think the Calvinists really believe in grace and grace alone. I, I listened to a Paul Washer sermon. I'm like, this guy doesn't believe in grace. He really doesn't. And it's this law-based approach to things. And that's important because you brought up logical sides of things. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me when you look at the early church fathers, the ones who were seemed to be eternal conscious torment, it is hard to even know because just their language was different. But Right. Yeah. They could, because we get translated into English uh, and we, they're talking about something about eternal. Well, I need to know from the original Greek. Okay, is that Aeonian or is that a you know Aedios, Aedos, or what word yeah. are we talking about here? There's so many different ways that you could take all these words too. Yeah, and then you read Plato and Aristotle, and eternal meant for sure age, and then you know Aeonios comes from the Hebrew Olam, which means age of time. I mean, so I don't. Again, I, I don't mind if people land in a certain spot, but when they just completely denounce that and say, well, that doesn't matter, that's not true, I'm just like, uh. But, <laughs> you know, you go back you go back to Calvinism, and it's like they're, they're so close in a way. But I will say, from what I've read and heard, the number one movement into universalism is Calvinists because they're like, this just, they just broaden their scope with that. But yeah. the, the, the thing that, that the law-based approach did, and... Again, it was started by lawyers. You know, Augustine was a lawyer, as far as I know. You know, Luther was a lawyer. Tertullian. The lawyers get always hung up on just the law. It's always about breaking the law, and that sometimes kills the logical side of things. And so, because the Western Church has given into a law-based approach, and when I say law-based, it's more transactional. You know, like 
it's a transaction between us and Jesus. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's where penal substitution comes in, which again, I hate to keep harping on it, but I just think that's such a disastrous theory. Cause that's like saying, uh, if someone comes and steals my lawnmower, I'm going to beat my son for it instead of the guy who came and stole my lawnmower. <laughs> right? That's like me saying, son, I love that guy who stole my lawnmower and I love you. So I'm going to beat you instead of him. What's the better option? Son, that guy stole our lawnmower. How about you and I forgive him and let him keep that lawnmower? That's real forgiveness. So I don't believe most, and I'm just talking about the logical side of things, that I don't believe most Western Christians actually believe in forgiveness. Forgiveness is not, I forgive you, now go do this. Forgiveness is, I forgive you. It's not a transaction. That's not forgiveness. So penal substitution is not forgiveness. It's a transaction. It's a trading of places. That is not real forgiveness. It's just not. So I say that because we have, again, we've been told not to think. We've been told that you can't trust your heart. I know that's in the Bible. You know, I know that Mm -hmm. stuff. But then that has led us to some disastrous interpretations. Because what's the one verse you always get thrown out at you when someone can't understand about eternal hell, right? Well, we just can't understand God's mind. What's the verse they always throw out at you? God's ways ways are higher than our ways. Right. And so I like actually like David Bentley Hart's he's a little harsh on this, but he goes, yeah, so that means God's ways are way worse than our ways, right? Yeah. And if you read that passage in Isaiah, it's about God's grace. It is literally about us not understanding how big God's grace is. And Christians will use that verse to sit to, to somehow logically make sense of eternal hell. And it's like, so I totally believe in the logical side that God gave us a brain because Jesus said you must worship the Lord with body, mind, and soul. And for some reason, we've completely thrown out the brain. We've just we've said that's evil, that's wrong. We just need to take this literally and everything will be fine. And I'm like, okay, well, which spots do we take literally then? <laughs> you know, am I gonna yeah. am I gonna gouge my eye out, you know, every time I lust or whatever? So logically, I think that's where eternal conscious torment when I finally moved away from it, it was more of a logical side because it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like how, I don't know how anyone can be a Calvinist and have children. Why would you ever have children and risk God not choosing one of your children? I mean, seriously, why would you even ever have children? Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> you know, I was, I was doing an interview with somebody and uh, I was saying that uh, I know of a, a guy who, got into the eternal conscious torment camp. And basically, well, as long as he believed that, he couldn't have children because he couldn't stand the idea that he could bring somebody into the world that might be tortured for, you know, <laughs> you know, tortured forever. And yeah, you start thinking about all those things and it can, it can really, it can really shut you down. But the, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, I, about keeping an open mind about things and reading different people is I used to think that Calvinism was all wrong. And so if Calvinism is all wrong, why should I even look at any of their arguments? Right. But but then I started looking at their argument for the sovereignty of God. And I thought, huh, well, that is a pretty good argument. I like that argument. And Mm -hmm. And then the argument that salvation is by grace alone, that is completely 100% of God. It's not 
salvation is not what we accomplish with God, it's what God accomplishes with us. Absolutely. Well, I started to really like that argument. And Calvin has spent a lot of time wondering what was in the mind of God at the beginning of creation, because they assumed that whatever was in the mind of God at the beginning of creation is what will come to pass. And so I thought, well, that's an, that is an interesting thought. Right. So then, I, that, then that got me asking the question, well, what is it that God had in, in mind at the beginning? And why would it be that God would get something different at the end than God intended at the beginning, especially if God is even outside of the time-space continuum? Yes. Now, there were other parts of Calvinism that I didn't, didn't agree with. But w- what I've learned is in this journey is that I end up agreeing my theology has been put together and but I end up agreeing with a lot of people I don't agree with everything that they say but it's like okay well you that's a good point here and that's a good point here and so once you say I can look at the whole history of the Christian tradition I can look at the best things the early church father said I can look at the best of Eastern Orthodoxy. I can look at the best of Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. I can look at the best of evangelical theology. I can look at the best of ma- mainstream liberal Protestant theology if I want to. And once you realize, okay, that's all open to me, and I can take the best, and I can learn. And yeah, I heard that if you can only learn from somebody that you completely agree with, you won't learn very much. Right. And so that kind of then freed me up to like say, okay, well, everybody's on their journey, especially from my point of view, if I believe I'm ultimately going to be reconciled with them, I don't really have any energy for getting like really angry with them because we disagree right now. Yeah, but, we're homies. We're, if we're homies in the future, we should be homies now. <laughs> yeah. And so we disagree about something or you're, you're but anyway, but I could, but I am free to say, hey, th- but that point that you made was a good one. I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that point. Uh, we so just for don't me, get the same. We just don't get the same courtesy on our side. It's true. Well, it it is true in some ways. I guess I'm in a little bit of a unique situation because I get a lot of contacts from people that listen to the podcast and they send me messages, and they're very, you know, like this is really really interesting. The way that even people that disagree with me have said that they thought that I made some good points and that they appreciated that I wasn't angry at them. Yeah, when you I know, did so, my hell series, when I did my hell series, I had not just one or two, numerous pastors in the community, uh, not just here, but in the Bitterroot and I mean, all over Montana, reach out to me and say, some were retired and they said, we believed this a long time and we were afraid to preach it. Other, other guys are still pastors and they have said to me, that took real courage to do a hell series and we, but we really wish we could talk about this, but our, deno- we will get fired. Our denomination will fire us if yeah. we talk about it. And so that's, that's the, that's, that's hard for me to be nice to sometimes. Cause you're like, why can't we even talk about it? You know, or why, why shouldn't we allow people to digest this? So they actually, if, if you believe in eternal conscious torment, you should at least know why you believe it. You know, you should at least know why you think that makes logical sense. But it's, there's so many more people who think this way, or at least um, are open to thinking this way, but they're just mm-hmm. afraid. And I think that's where Peter Hyatt on your podcast said, people are afraid of not being afraid. 
And we have, we've like conditioned ourselves that if, if we have peace, then something's wrong. We're, we're getting loose. Like, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's just not true. I mean, Jesus said, I give you the peace that passes understanding. And again, if the, if the truth sets you free and you're not free, then you're not in the truth. You're just not. And so logically, when you take a lot of those things out and you walk people through it, like even the old Testament, David, the old Testament was actually, as I said before, that this is what really made me think about it. It's like, you would think that Adam and Eve, right? You would think that God would have said to them, if you eat of this tree, you, sh- you will surely die. And I'm going to torture you for all eternity. Like that should have been front and center. I mean, we're talking <laughs> page one, whatever. You never see it. You don't see the word hell once in the entire Old Testament. And I know the King James Version changed Sheol to hell, and that was a big ploy to get people to obey the king. But it's not there. And so my they just didn't think that way. When they thought about they believed this life mattered. They believed if your life was cut short from sin, then it was a disaster because you didn't live this full life that God gave you on this planet. And mm-hmm. you, they just didn't think about that. So in my studies, it, it seeped into Judaism once they were taken over by the Babylonians and the Assyrians because paganism believed in eternal conscious torment. Paganism believed in it. And so they adopted some of those views. And so then Jesus shows up on the scene and he speaks their language. He talks their language. And I think it was your last podcast guest, I believe, who talked about why Jesus had to die on a cross was to shame the entire family or so he couldn't get buried. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. That was Jonathan Mitchell. He was saying it was that the, they wanted to kill his, his soul, his whole his life, soul. everything he stood for. Right. Yeah. Complete and destruction. Because it was a shame-based society where you didn't get a proper burial. So technically, Jesus's body was supposed to be thrown into Gehenna. That was the place of shame. But then, uh, you know, the Pharisee came and grabbed him and got him a new Joseph, got him a new tomb and kind of redeemed that. But I I do still think it's interesting that Jesus then went into Gehenna, like went into Hades. It clearly says that. And so I think when you just follow that track, it's like Jesus was confronting them in a pagan worldview, really. I mean, it really was a pagan worldview. I think the Jews believed if you went to Hades, I mean, before that, you were there for a year or something like that. Uh, So again, my whole point is, is we've made this like the main theme of Christianity when it just wasn't. It just really wasn't. And when you read the early church fathers, they did not talk about Hades that much. They really didn't talk about it. They talked about right now and the kingdom now and redeeming this place now. And that's where Dallas Willard picks that up in the divine conspiracy. And I say that because... It's just a complete opposite in American Christianity sometimes. It's just a get out of hell free card. Just say the prayer, get just get your get out of hell free card, and then you can almost do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't mean that you're that they, they will come out and say that, but they're like, as long as you've put your faith in Jesus, no matter what you do, you're good. And I'm like, I just don't see that in the New Testament anymore. I don't see that. Like I believe hell can come to you right here, right now. I have experienced hell. I've given hell out of my own heart. So do I want to just say, well, it's okay, because at least I'm not going to the bigger hell later on or the greater mm-hmm. hell later on. I feel hearts, or I, feel, I feel Hades burning in my heart sometimes. And I have felt Hades on my tongue sometimes. And 
I just think when you make this into a, you know, you mentioned it earlier, right? The old saying, well, before you tell them the good news, you got to tell them the bad news. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what a horrible way to view God that that's what God wants. Like I, you know, I saw a funny meme where it was Jesus and it says, he's knocking on a door and it says, let me in. And it says, why? And he says, because if you don't let me in, I'm going to throw you into this place that I've created. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, I'll let you in, right? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. But what kind of what kind of actual trust and love and relationship can come from that? And I realized I am more afraid of hell now than I used to be because I believe in the ever present redemption of all things, and I want to line up. Hell is the opposite of light. It's it's darkness. It's it's really just me. Hades just means to not see. That's really what it means to not see. Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world," and so mm -hmm. I'm I'm more afraid of falling into hell now and screwing up a ton of things. You know, like and that's what believing in God's grace did is just knowing like the good news is the good news. It's either good news for all or it's good news for none. I mean, it's just it's the good news. That's what it is, and that helps us to me when you have that focus, it just helps you really love Jesus more and come to him more and expose these things in your heart more now, because sometimes in Western evangelicalism, we think, okay, well, as soon as I die, then I'm going to be perfect. I just can't wait to die. So I'm perfect. And I'm like, well, I want to get as close to perfection here for me, for the world, for my family, for God, you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. it's not, it's not just the next stage where I'm going to be perfect. It's like, no, I want to get hell out of me right now. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, the idea about freedom. I grew up in Texas, um, live in Arkansas now. I'll just say I spent a lot of time in, in red state America mm -hmm. and, and what's really important to a lot of people is freedom. Well, that's like the top, that's like the top thing. And so they want to be free to be the master of their own destiny. Don't tread on me. I want to do, I want to chart my own course. Even if, the, even if it's a bad one, I want to chart my own course. So the problem is with Christian universalism from their point of view is, what we're saying is, well, ultimately, you don't get to chart your own course. You know, that God has already charted a good course. Yeah, why does everybody this matter? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, what, you, what you're doing is you're getting the chance to realize this and conform yourself to your creation and to your destiny, which is a good one. But that comes across their radar screen is, wait a second, if this is all predetermined, even towards a good end, then I'm not, you know, then I'm not free. Right. And, and that means God is doing a bad thing because taking freedom away from people, you know, in America, we don't like tyrants. We don't like dictators. And so what you're saying is basically God is kind of this tyrant who has decided that I'm going to have this, you know, this end, but I don't get to choose it. And if I don't get to choose it, that's not good. And that's not meaningful for me. So that right. was an objection that a lot of people had. And it was an initial objection that I kind of had too. And I sort of had to work through those. I try to understand what is a free will and how can we understand that? So what are your, what is your, your some, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think freedom and our rights, like I do believe Christian nationalism is a, is a major threat to the Christian church um, because 
what we've done is we, and I'm, I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want my freedoms taken away. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, Oh yeah, come lock me up. You know? <laughs> uh, so I, I understand the fear. I understand that, but they think that universalism means you can do whatever you want and you just walk in. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know one universalist who believes that. I don't know one universalist who thinks that you can just do whatever you want. In fact, you take the redemption of God so seriously, you start trying to change the world for better now, for better now. But I think in America, we've made freedom into you have the freedom and the right to make money, get married, have a retirement. And anything that comes in the way of that is an enemy. It's an enemy. And that has seeped into the church now because Americans love, let's, let's just admit it. We love winners and losers. We are obsessed with winning. We're obsessed with being number one. We're obsessed with winning. And I'll give you one example. When Remember in the 80s and 90s when we used to judge the Chinese Olympic athletes because they were basically sent to a farm to be, mm-hmm. become good? And, you know, we thought, how, how awful, like how crazy is that? Well, 30 years later, we're pretty much doing that now with kids in sports, with travel sports and like specializing, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's like, I don't, it's easy for us to say, to judge them when we're doing that now. I mean, literally, if you look at like travel sports for kids now, it's, it's nuts. And so what that proves to me is we do have this obsession with winning in life. And then you read the Gospels and Jesus is like, actually, real freedom is giving your freedom up. You know, Paul said that. Don't use your freedom for yourself. Use it for other people. And real freedom is dying. Real freedom is dying to yourself. So the the craziest paradox of the Gospels is you win by losing. Like, you win by losing. And that's Mm -hmm. literally the opposite of the American vision of how life should go. So then when you talk about universalism, that the hope is eventually everybody wins throughout the eons of time. And I want to be very clear. I think someone can stay in Hades, whatever that is, for a very long time and possibly forever if they choose that. I mean, I do believe in a choice, but I just don't think God ever gives up. I, you know, I don't, and I don't think we give up. And so universalism basically says you win and you lose because there's going to be other people there who you thought should lose. Right. So it's totally mm-hmm. contradictory to the American vision of winning and losing. Like there can only be one Super Bowl champion. Right. So it's that's that's what's hard for people when we view freedom. We view freedom as this is my yard. And like you said, don't tread on me instead mm-hmm. of freedom of like, wow, I have the freedom to make this world a better place by giving myself up and giving my money up and giving those things up. And so. I see why that's a huge deterrent to some people if they have the win at all costs mentality, because if everyone makes it eventually, then everybody wins and you can't pick a moral side on who's better or worse. But that's a really poor way to look at universalism, because I believe when Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, regret and remorse, if you spend your whole life hating God and you were just a selfish person, and that is revealed to you at the judgment when you stand before him, you bet there's going to be weeping and gnashing in teeth. You bet. But to take it the next step further to say your punishment is going to be being burned alive for all eternity, I don't know how that I don't know how that makes God win. 
Like, so if we, if we really mm-hmm. love winners, if we really love winners, universalism says God is the biggest winner of all time. He's the biggest winner and he, he loses nothing. That should scream awesomeness to American Christians that like Jesus is the biggest winner of all time. He's, he's not going to lose one. And I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's a parable about that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's... yeah, I think, I think in the winners and losers, American Western worldview. Yeah. Universalism makes no sense because there has to be a loser. And I, I listen to a certain preachers and, who I disagree with. And it's like I said, I don't want to be mean, but it's so boring because if you listen to what these preachers are saying, there's always an enemy. There's always an enemy. And if you're on their side, you're safe, you're safe, but then there's always an enemy. And then what that does is it causes scapegoating. Like you can scapegoat a whole group of people and say, they're the problem for all of, you know, the nation's woes. And then we forget that Jesus was the last scapegoat. The, (laughs) The picture of the cross was no, stop scapegoating each other. Stop. You scapegoated me. Now stop scapegoating each other. And so mm-hmm. I, I think the winners and losers mentality in the church has just, it's, I, I've done it because, you know, you got to build the church and then the, the institution becomes greater than the people. And so then people can become expendable. And if, if they don't toe the line or they don't agree on something, then that's disrupting the institution. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, it's I, I see why people think universalism is uh, is bad in the sense that no one wins. But I'm like, everybody wins. And Jesus is the biggest winner of all time. And to me, that makes way more sense that God, George MacDonald even believed that uh, the Scottish theologian, he believed that for all eternity, or not all eternity, but we're not just going to sit there and watch people be in pain we're going to have the mind of Christ. We're going to try to convince them. We're going to try to convince them of the goodness of God. How long that takes? I don't, who knows? Who knows? But can you imagine, like I always use this example about eternal conscious torment. It's like, we're all like, let's say it's, it's after the world's over or whatever. And this is big party going on. And all the righteous ones, the ones who believed in Jesus before they died are upstairs and we're just throwing this rager. And it's just amazing. But there's a basement to the house. Mm-hmm. And in the base, in the basement, it's on fire. It's on fire. And we know it's happening, but we don't care. We don't care. We're just going to play this music. We're going to worship God, whatever. But the one person who has the keys to the door of the basement that's on fire is Jesus Christ. Because it says that. I hold the keys to death in Hades. What do we think he's going to do with the keys? You know? Literally or metaphorically, whatever that means. I'm like, could we, it's so, if eternal conscious torment is true, David, we live in the greatest horror movie of all time, of all universe. It's the greatest horror movie there is. I mean, it doesn't even come close to it or Freddy Krueger or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? It's so much worse because it's billions upon billions of people. And we're just going to be upstairs partying with our Lord who has the keys, who can let these people out. It just, that just doesn't connect with me. And to me, I think that shows the true heart of Christ. Why would you not want everyone to be saved? That's the question I always ask. Like, why would you not want that? And they usually say, well, I want that, but I just don't think that's true. And I'm like, so I find it interesting that us evil human beings, Jesus said this, you who are evil, know how to (laughs) give good gifts to your children. We want that. But the God who is love 
doesn't want that or isn't going to do that, right? So it still constantly puts God worse than humans in a way. And But that, that's hard for the, the one who wants to win. That is hard. Now, in Missoula, did you did you grow up in Missoula? Uh, I grew up in Haver, Montana, on the High Line, and then I moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, and for like eight years. But I've been in Missoula ever since. So my whole family's from Missoula. Okay, so in in the, you know if you look at a map, Missoula is this this town, and there's not a lot there's not a lot around it. You know, so it's it's kind of like its own, its own environment, its own system. Like I live in a, I live in a town, Harrison. And for a long time, it was the county seat and you had to go a long way to get, to get other things. So it kind of, it kind of creates this, this special kind of social environment where people are there generationally Mm. and, and you grow up there and you're known there. And especially you make some big splash in the community and have this big service of 6,000 people and makes the newspaper and, you know, and then, then you have this big church and you go through this big split, mm-hmm. you know? And so, but in the midst of all of that, you have kept going. Your church went, lost some membership, but you, you've built back up. I've followed your Easter services this year very, you know, really amazing. Yeah. Uh, I've followed, I've listened to your sermons. You're a really good preacher. The, uh, I, I got a doctor of ministry and preaching and I tell people I didn't get a doctor of ministry and preaching to make me the best preacher. I was just trying to get a little better myself, but mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you just see people that are good at things and they're just good at it. And you're just good at preaching. You have a lot of, well, you have a lot you. of energy, you know, whenever I look at your sermons, they're very, uh, they're, you know, it's just very engaged and the people that are around you in the service, just the general vibe of the whole place, just is a good feeling. People just they feel happy. They feel excited. It's very open and welcome and encouraging. And, uh, but I just think it's fascinating that you're doing this in this community, sort of in front of everybody, your whole life, your whole journey, just kind of out there for everybody to see. And you've, you're taking people in this community on this journey with you. And it seems to me like you're continuing to want to stay in Missoula. I think I saw online that you guys are going to be building another facility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to leave this small town world. I don't know. Maybe you will in the future, but <laughs> you just seem to be, I know what, I know what it's like to live in a world that feels kind of self-contained like that. And so how has that journey been for you? Where, where do you think you are on that? How are you feeling about things? That's a really good question. Not to get into the weeds of the church split too much, um, but it, I mean, it was disastrous. It was terrible. And um, it was all fear-based. And that's what I struggled with was like, mm-hmm. as I said before, there were people who really were enjoying it and they're like, this makes sense. And then all of a sudden this other group started telling them this was wrong and it's, they're responsible for that, I guess, you know, they're responsible for that before God. And I trust that. Um, but our church went in half. So we were at 1500. We probably got down to 700, somewhere around there. And then coronavirus hit. So like any church, most churches don't know who really goes to their church at this point. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. 
Um, but it, I can tell you doing it in a public space like this, especially your hometown. I mean, Jesus said a prophet's never welcomed in yeah. his hometown. So yeah. they know all your former dirt. And I mean, I guess I don't want to put the Christians down too much, but Missoula, Montana is a place where only 4% of people go to church. 4%. I think that's great. I, I meet people all the time who've never been to church in their life. And they're my favorites because they don't bring all the baggage in. They bring societal baggage of all the crap that's been said about the church, true or false, but they don't bring any of that baggage. And mm -hmm. this message for them is like, boom. <laughs> like <laughs> it's like watching a little kid like get something and know that their dad loves them. It's so fun to watch. So Missoula is a, is a pagan town really. And I love it. I love this place, but it is known for church hoppers. So basically there's a, there's certain groups of Christians who just keep bouncing around from place to place because they get mad at the pastor. Or they don't like the vision or, uh, something, I don't know, something always happens. And we want no part of that anymore. And that's uh -huh. what the church, that's what you know, this, this message of universalism and the church split did like we we're not here to, and it's almost like, you know, you got the sign, God is here at this church and then, and then, okay, now <laughs> God's at this other church and all, you know, it's like, so the church split had to happen. I'm glad it did. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not glad the way it happened. It was, and it's not about me, man. It's not about me or the other pastors who left. It was about the people. It was about the people. But let me say this. We are a brand new church now. And I mean with people and we are thriving and we are doing well. Summertime attendance is always pretty low in Montana, but yeah. I don't blame them. If I wasn't a pastor, I would be on the lake too. So, <laughs> uh, so what we have found is it's like these Christians coming out of these caves almost to come to Zootown because one, they're tired of politics. They're just sick and tired of politics, of, of, of really right-wing politics. They're tired of just hearing about that all the time. But mm -hmm. secondly, they, they're just starting to see stuff. They're just starting to see this. And Zootown gives them the ability to think, to think about it. Wherever they land, we give them the space to think about it. And we are seeing people we had never even expected. We have probably three former pastors, two Assemblies of God pastors that come here now. And uh, same thing. They were like, yeah, everyone talks about this, but no one can really talk about it because they'll get fired and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. we are in a, in a, a totally different eclectic group now. And I would never, ever go back to the culture we were before. I would never go through. We, it didn't have to happen that way to get to where we're at. But maybe right. it did. Maybe it did because I was ready to quit the ministry. I was done. I was over it. I was bitter. And God's like, no, no. And now on the other side of this, just to feel that freedom with God, there's no going back, man. There's no going back. And I will say the hardest part is there is a lot of pressure still within the community from other Christians. So I, we just hired this new woman at our church and she met with some former people that she used to know here in Missoula. And they said the same thing to her. You're working at Zootown. Like they're heretics, they're heretics. <laughs> so there is, there is this pressure in Missoula from other Christians. And the funny thing is these Christians have been to four or five churches, right? And yeah. there is this weird, I, I call it a Pharisee spirit because what the Pharisee spirit, what the Pharisees did when they couldn't battle Jesus anymore, they went to this followers and started pulling them to the side. And being like, why aren't you, why aren't you washing your hands? And 
Yeah. How come, how come you're not fasting? And notice that and then Jesus would hear what they'd say and he'd come in and interject. But that's, that's the one issue with this is I really, and I got to show them grace. I got to show people grace, but I'm at the point where I've studied this so much and I'm no expert. I'm no John bear. I'm really not, but it's hard when people just don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, it, they're trying to explain to you. And they always say this to me, like they'll sit down to me and be like, no, you just don't understand. You know, look at this. And I'll be like, look, brother, sister, I preached that for 10 years. <laughs> like I do. Un- I was a Calvinist for three years. I mean, like I know this stuff and they're always like, it's kind of like someone saying to me like, Hey, you got to check out Disneyland. And I'm like, yeah, I've been there. And they're like, yeah, but you got to go see Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm like, I mean, yeah, I've been there. And what I always say to them is, you know what I haven't seen? I haven't seen the new Star Wars area of Disneyland. So I want to go there. And that's how I view theology. That's how I view this is in universalism is like, I've been to those other places. I've moved on to this new place and it's way sweeter and it's, it's cutting edge. And I don't know if you ever read the, did you read the article? The Gospel Coalition, you know, they're all Calvinists, um, and they wrote an article about universalism. And they base, you know, it was after David Bentley Hart wrote his book uh, that all shall be saved. Mm-hmm. And within that, basically, the article it was very smug, you know. Uh, but in that article, it said, "Yeah, Christian universalism seems to poke its head, you know, every century, and then it gets squashed." And I kept thinking, "Wow, thanks for admitting what you guys are actually trying to do. Like, thanks for admitting that that." that you guys are trying to destroy this theology. The problem with that is I see it the opposite. Why does this keep coming up century after century after century after century? Why when they try to, I mean, literally people have died for this theological viewpoint. Why does it keep coming up? Like, why can't it get squashed? And now, as you've mentioned in your podcast, I agree with you. Martin Luther came around with the printing press, you know, There was no Mm -hmm. accident that the printing press was invented during that time. The internet is the new printing press. It's the new, good or bad. I'm not saying that in a good way either. I'm saying it's the new printing press. So what happened was, is these theological gatekeepers like Piper and MacArthur and all those dudes, they, they're gone. There is no more gate. That gate has been shattered by the internet. And so now instead of just, I mean, even if you believe in eternal conscious torment, instead of just combating it and saying, this is false, this is heresy. If they don't at least sit down and start being like, Hey, here's, here's this view. Here's that view. They're, they're doubling down on a thing that is killing the church right now in the first place. So they're doubling down on a strategy of bullying and heretics. And I said this in my sermon yesterday, I don't even take that word seriously anymore because all you have to do is go to YouTube and Google any pastor that's kind of well-known and someone will be calling them a heretic. Mm-hmm. Somebody will. So it's like when people say that to me now, I'm just kind of like, that's original. Like that's real original, you know, (laughs) but, but it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And I think when uh, Preston Sprinkle wrote that book and even Francis Chan, I got to give Francis Chan some credit. He even said the word eternal is not as easy as he thought it was in that book. So it's, it's a movement, it's a reformation, and I don't, I don't think it's a reformation for universalism per se. I think it's a reformation for uniting the church in these different views and be able to talk about it because young people, they're just done. They're done with this. They're done with being shouted down. They're done with being told, you know, 
ultimatums. They're just done with that. And I don't think it's effective in the first place. Like if you're an atheist at Zootown church, that's your prerogative. I'm glad you're here to listen to the message, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not here to convert you. I'm not here to change you. I'm here to introduce you to Jesus Christ. And that's where the church movement's going now. It's not like you have to make a decision right now. That's, I mean, Peter, the, the apostle Peter made that decision. How'd it go after that? Right? The guy, the guy ends up cutting off ears. He, uh, and if we're honest, Peter was a racist. The guy was a racist. Well, God still used him. Jesus used him for years. Finally, he's like, well, enough of that. Here's a dream. Four corners of the earth, which, by the way, represents the entire earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that dream. And the funny thing is, what does he say to Peter, David? Do not call something unclean that I have deemed clean. That's what the cross did. And so they keep we, we keep trying to call these things heresy and all that stuff. And that's a mm-hmm. dangerous, dangerous spot to be because Jesus said, don't call something clean unclean that I've called clean. And I think that's the movement that's happening is whether where no matter where someone lands, they're done being shouted down. They're just done. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do at first when I came to my point of view, I became concerned that, well, this is complex enough that it was hard to just sit down and have a conversation with somebody about. And so I needed to write something not too long, but that would that would approach it from a positive point of view. And I I knew that people really are interested in grace and scripture. And so I just wanted to have a conversation about this and say, you know, you can be a Christian and believe that grace saves and that grace goes to all. You don't have to, you're not forced into subtracting from either grace's availability or its power. And uh, to show a biblical argument for that and to and uh, to just introduce people to some good scholarship and to kind of lay it out there for them. And then there wasn't, there were podcasts that had episodes but there wasn't a podcast that was just completely devoted uh, to this topic. And so I retired. I was coming to the point where I was ready to retire from pastoral ministry. And I tell people, it's, well, I didn't really, I didn't, I retired from pastoral ministry, but I began the podcast ministry. For and sure. so what I wanted to do was make this available for people to listen to and to write my book just as an introduction and say, but now let me introduce you to a bunch of interesting people. And a bunch of let's ha- and some conversations, and I'll call them up, and we'll have conversations. And so, the, one of the and one of the things that's been the neatest is uh, one of the neatest compliments I got was from you when you said that that somehow that my podcast was something that you were able to use to refer to other people. Like, hey, if you want to find mm-hmm. out in, in a conversational format or a podcast format, if you want to find out about this, just check out this this podcast. So it's made me feel good that. In Missoula, Montana, people are driving around trying to, you know, because Pastor Scott has stirred this whole pot up. And so they're trying to figure out what is this Christian universalism thing. And maybe some of them are listening to my podcast because you sent them that direction. And now maybe even one day somebody's going to turn on the Grace Saves All podcast and they're going to hear Pastor Scott Clout on the Grace Saves All podcast (laughs) and maybe get connected with with the Zootown church. So... That just makes me feel really good that somehow what I'm doing has been helpful for you and the and the Zootown Church and the and, and the people in Missoula who are trying to understand all of this. Oh yeah, got and like I said, that's the new printing press is this kind of stuff. Yeah. And 
And that's, that's really just all we're trying to do. But I'm, I don't want to, I'm not going to kind of sidestep this anymore either. Like I'm open to the possibility of eternal conscious torment. Cause I have to, I have to stay open to that, to be able to communicate to people and stuff like that. But at this point, I have seen the fruit of preaching God's love and redemption. I've seen the fruit of it for the last three years now over the other fruit. And this fruit is far, far away better. <laughs> you can see it softening people. It's making people love people more. Uh, I mean, some of the most hardened dudes I'm starting to watch be very grace-filled, very grace-filled uh, because of this message. Because you start seeing when, when people aren't someone that you need to go save, and mm-hmm. probably in, in, in my sinfulness, probably screw up that message anyways to that person, like in the yeah. way I communicate it, to just know that they are saved, they just might not know it yet. I mean, Paul said that in 2 Corinthians. He's like, you have been reconciled to God, and he's made us minister mouthpieces of this. And then I love that next verse. He goes, so we, we plead you on behalf. Be reconciled to God. So yeah. I love I love that because it is a weird mystery where I'm telling people every week, it is finished. It is over. You are reconciled. Christ lives in you. Paul said that, that the mystery, Christ lives in you. I don't care if you believe it or not. Christ lives in you. You are saved. Now believe the good news. You sh- Just to see people's reactions and how they embrace the gospel in that way, other than the other way, then... You're trash. You were born a sinner. God loathes. God loathes you. <laughs> I mean, that's really the Calvinism. We've heard the Calvinists say that. Yeah. Uh, but thank God for Jesus. I mean, God can't even look at you. He can't even look at your sin. Remember Habakkuk says he can't even look at sinners, even though the next verse he says, so why do you look at sinners? But <laughs> he says, you know, what kind of message is that? Like, what kind of message? I've done it and it works, but it only works for a little bit. And I, I don't see the fruit going well when you give that message. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll receive this message. I'll receive this because I don't want to go to hell. And now you look back at even at like summer camps and little kids sitting around a fire and telling them, I went to one, by the way, and it's they oh. telling them, telling them, this is a common story at David, telling them, look at this fire. This is where you're going to go. But praise God for Jesus. Well, what kid's not going to be like, yeah, I'll raise my hand. I'll raise my hand. I'm in. Well, yeah. I look I look back at that now. That's child abuse. That's actually child abuse. That is that is mental child abuse for a child that's going to cause – I had it. My mom – it wasn't my parents, but it was this camp I went to to where you're, you're constantly afraid of going to hell. You're constantly afraid that God's mad at you because he has to be if he created this, this place, you know? So I just see the fruit of giving that message mm-hmm. and the fruit that of giving the message now of Christ finished the job and it's over and it's done and you are saved and you need to believe that and repent because repentance means to change your mind, like think like God. Mm-hmm. You need to do that to enter into your salvation, to enter into this. You have to believe it. And that's a daily choice, by the way, that I don't believe it some days. So it's this daily choice. That's so much better. And you can see people's response of saying like, there's, so what do I need to do? Remember with an act? So what do we need to do? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you just believe that you are saved and you are beloved, not that you need to do something to be saved. And you can literally, you've seen it, David, you can watch the fruit in people. You can see how they, 
look at God differently. They can, you know, how they see Jesus. And it's like, I do little tricks sometimes. Like, remember that spot where Jesus says, hinder not the children from coming to me, right? Mm -hmm. But when they turn 18, I don't care anymore. And I'm going to burn them for all eternity. That just doesn't make sense, right? Like, hinder not that. I love these children so much. And it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to hurt one of these children. But I'm going to hurt these children when they grow up. You know, just this kind of stuff like that, that just starts clicking with people. It starts clicking with people. And that was my wife when, I mean, she grew up Assemblies of God and she thought I was a heretic when I first started talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. It was, it was tough. And then one day, I hope I don't cry, but she comes in and she said, she was reading the parable of the lost sheep. And she said, Scotty, I get it. I get it. And I was like, what do you get? And she goes, he left the 99 righteous ones for the one, for the one. And that means every last one. And we had this great moment where we just, you know, cried together and all that. And then, what is, you know, I love that whole thing. You go, lost mm-hmm. coin, lost sheep. What, what, did the, what did the coin do to be found? Nothing. Nothing. The woman, God, found it and then threw a party that was probably worth more money than what that coin yeah. was worth in the first place. <laughs> but that coin, right? That coin didn't cease being a coin because it got lost and it didn't lose its value. Like it didn't, it didn't go from 25 cents to 10 cents because she lost yeah. it. Right. Well, see, it's fun thinking about this. It's like thinking about those parables. So the guy, so the shepherd went out and he found that lost sheep and he whipped the everlasting hell out of that thing. He threw Absolutely. a rope around its neck and he drug it back. And then he, he threw it in with the other with the other sheep. And for the rest of that sheep's life, whenever that sheep got close enough, the shepherd kicked it just as right. a warning to the other sheep, not to run off and be like that stupid sheep. Yeah. Cause that's what happens I love to he, you. And, and then I love, he goes, he, he, he culminates it with the prodigal son story. what the prodigal son story do? Well, one, that kid died. That kid was dead. That's the real Greek. And two, yeah. the father died. The father died. Yeah, he divided his life among his bios. He divided right. his life among his children. So he was yeah. dead. So th- when it says that the kid came to his senses, you know, he comes home, he's rehearsing this whole spiel, which is religion, by the way. It's just, he was just, it was just religious that he was trying to like say, Lord, I don't, or Father. I don't even think he really believed that he was going to be a servant. <laughs> I think he was just <laughs> think he just thought he was telling his dad what he wanted to hear. But I love it. The father runs up and he says, he doesn't even let the kid talk doesn't even let the kid talk. And then puts the robe on him, the ring, the sandals, and then he kills the fattened calf. We have completely reversed that. We say, you need to believe he's killed the fattened calf, and then he'll give you the robe, the ring, and all that stuff. You know? Yeah. That's that's the gospel. You are saved. You're home. I died. You died. You're resurrected. Now let's, now let's kill this calf to celebrate, to prove. I'm going to prove to you that you're welcome home by killing this the best calf I got. Well, fast forward, you got the older brother. He's standing outside. He's yeah. done everything right. And he's thinking, why in the world did these losers get in? And the father comes out to him. And I love that story because one, I think yeah. the door he goes was- out to both. He goes out to both of them. Right. Because he runs out to the prodigal coming home, but then he has to go out to the, to the elder brother. Yeah. Right. And so I love where this conversation is going right now. Cause then I, I always picture that scene where the whole town was there. The whole town was there partying. 
and the doors open. He can hear the music and the father waits outside with him. He waits outside with him. So to me, and then the story ends, right? We don't know how the story goes, but Mm -hmm. to me, that's a pretty big sign that one, you know, some of the early church fathers for sure, they said, well, if anyone is still in hell, be assured Christ is with him. Like Christ is with them. To me, that prodigal son story proves it to me. And I think the scariest part of that story isn't the the prodigal son, it's the older brother, where so many people think that they have this doctrine down and this knowledge down and all these things down. And I think they're going to be sitting outside the party for a little bit while dad talks to him. (laughs) And that, I see it all over, man. Like, remember that Simon, even Simon, you know, when Jesus goes to Simon's house, and I've read this wrong, or I've read this differently. We always focus on the woman who comes in and washes his feet, right? And Mm -hmm. Uh, he looks at her though. Her sins are many, you know, Mm -hmm. she's done this thing. And then he looks at Simon and he goes, those who are forgiven much love much. We've always made that about her. And one day I was on my porch reading that passage and the spirit said to me, don't look at her. Look at him. Look at Simon. Look at Simon. Look at Simon. Look at Simon. So I looked up the other places with Simon and I, I can't make a doctrine out of this, David, but I will say this. What if Jesus was looking at Simon and being like, Simon, you are a Pharisee bound for hell. But when you get it, you're going to be one of my greatest disciples because those who are forgiven much love much. So let's be real, man. Those Pharisees who killed Jesus, were they forgiven? Absolutely. He said it on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They're Mm -hmm. forgiven. So imagine being a Pharisee. You killed your own Messiah. You wrecked your nation by not obeying Jesus and not fighting the Romans, your whole life was basically a wash. And then you stand before Christ and he forgives you and he lets you in. Who's going to be the greatest lovers of God? (laughs) I mean, I'm a total retrobate. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. But when, when you think you're the man and all of a sudden you're standing before the glory of God and he still forgives you, Man, I think those Pharisees are going to be some of the best followers of Christ in heaven. I really. <laughs> well, do. I like it. I was trying to think in the. And I was trying to. I, I thought Calvinism. They have the five points of their doctrine. So I was trying to come up with my five points for my, you know, Christian universalism. And I was trying to think, what is it that 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 Christ, that God in Christ, does something for a sin? What does what does what does God do? And the word that just kept coming to me was covers. There's a place earlier in Romans where where David, quoting the Psalm of David, blesses the one whose sins are covered. Um, and just thinking back to the, you know, the story in the garden, you know, you if you eat of this through this tree, you will die. Well, they did, but they didn't die. Yeah. I mean, it's spiritually, it was a spiritual thing. But what he did, but then he covered them. He covered their, you know, because now they were aware or whatever, he covered their sin. He covered their shame and the covering that the father gives to the the shamed son coming home it's the robe it's the ring it's not just it's not just it's the robe it's the ring it's the sandal it's the meal you know it's this full covering over his mm-hmm. over his shame and like i said once we I think we both experienced it once you just start seeing this and realizing yeah. the implications of all this well that's that's fallen shamed humanity we just don't and once we wake up to this, what a glorious awakening it is. 
And I don't even credit myself for waking up to this because it was other people all along the way that were poking me and prodding me to look at this. And, and so, you know, finally my moment came where I, where I awakened to it, but I don't credit myself. No, me neither. And it, you do feel a weight lifted off you. Like it's something happens when you finally get this. And it's funny. You mentioned the garden again. It's just, they ran from God. He chased them down. <laughs> and then I love when he goes, who told you you were naked? Because what he was saying there is, I didn't say that. And so I think the whole covering was, you might be in shame. You might feel shame because you're telling mm-hmm. yourself that. But I'm not the one telling you that. I'm not the one telling you that. And the cool part about that that covering, that word, if you look at it and you trace it through the Old Testament, I think there's three other spots. It's the same word for royal tunic oh, that cool. he covered at. So what he was doing, so it's what the priests wore. It's what the priests wore in Israel. So what he was doing metaphorically or literally, who knows? That's not the point. The point is he's saying you have sinned, but I cover you and put you back in the position as the as the priest of the world, as the priest, my priest here. And that's what he was doing with the prodigal son too. Like, it was just like, I cover you. I've put, I've, I've put you back into the position you were before. And so that's how I view all life really. Like I am dying. I'm dying but Christ is redeeming this to put me back into the position of high priest uh, of the world, basically, you know, as to give sacraments to God from the world. And you just can't not see it, David. You can't not see it anymore. And I think the biggest issue with people, and Peter Hyatt does a great job with Romans, but, you know, Romans is like the book and everyone stops in chapter eight and nine. Everyone stops mm-hmm. there. I know why. I mean, I just watched Vody Bachman and all those dudes, uh, those Calvinist guys preach on Romans, Romans, and mm-hmm. they skip over all those parts. And But I will say, Vody Bachman is talking about, as in Adam, all men die, as in Christ, all men live. And he preached this message, and I'm listening to it going, you're claiming universalism right now. You are, you are absolutely claiming universalism, because he yeah. says all is all. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> so... You know, you get, that's one of the problems with this is people, you know, they highlight one point and Brad Jerzak does a good job at not cherry picking stuff, but you get to Romans 11, he's like, well, he's confined all the, to sin that he might have mercy on all and all Israel be saved. And it's the same with like, when Jesus says, you will all be salted with fire, all of you. And we're like, oh my gosh. And then right after it, he goes, but salt is good. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. but salt is, salt is good. You know, and so it's like, I think sometimes I like to say we read the, the scriptures like we read text messages or emails. Sometimes we it's a horrible way to communicate because you there's no emotion. There's no body language. Mm-hmm. How many how many texts have I read? Like, what's this guy's problem? Or like, why is my mom or why is my wife upset with me? And she's like, I'm not I'm not upset. And I think sometimes that's how we read the Bible. Like we think that God is just erratic and upset all the time. And it's just not true because in order for God to be really angry, he'd have to be surprised in order to be angry. You have to be surprised by something like you don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. That's not true doing, with God. I was doing an art, an interview with uh, Douglas Campbell, uh, who's this, you know, amazing Pauline scholar. Mm-hmm. And his, his understanding is that in the ancient world, like if you sent somebody, if you sent the letter, you would send it with somebody and they would know how to read it. So that his letter was, was a performed reading to the, to the church 
in mm. in Rome so that they would get the nuance of what was going on there because in that letter there are different points of view that are being assumed and argued back and forth and you would get that in the oral reading you would mm. get the different nuances you would get all of that but when when you're just reading it as a flat letter now like you miss you we miss some of those changes of tone and different points of view that are being taken so i think well, that's i think yeah. that's really important and there's one theory that says paul was answering questions sent to him by his congregation so that's where romans get sticky because and i even see that like that one part about women and you know talking in church <laughs> when you look at where that's placed it just doesn't even it doesn't even make sense with the flow of what paul's talking about so either that was inserted by later copyists or that theory that Paul was answering questions, like Paul would write out their question and then answer it. And that's a really interesting uh, perspective for me, especially with Romans 1, because Romans 1 sounds very Jewish, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is how the Jews view the pagans. This is how the Jews view the world. And he, you know and homosexuals and all kinds of stuff. And he's walking them through this. And then first two, so why do you do the same things? Right? Yeah. So you, oh man, you, oh man, what, you know, you, you're, why do you do the same thing? So oh, I'm okay. wondering, yeah, I'm wondering if Romans one was a letter sent to him by the Judaizers. Cause what all the book of Romans is, he's trying to bring the Romans and the Jews together to form the church. That's what he's trying to do. And he's seeing judgment from the Romans against the Jews. He's seeing judgment from the Jews against the Romans. So he's hammering, he's hammering their hypocrisy. He's hammering their beliefs in a way. And that's what we even miss. You know, the Calvinists take that, that verse about Pharaoh where it's like, see, God can do whatever he wants. He wants to make someone for trash. He can do it. That's mm -hmm. not the point that Paul's trying to drive home. Paul's trying to say, to the Jews, look, you think you're better than Pharaoh? Look what God did with Pharaoh. And now look what God did with you Jews to like, you killed your own Messiah. Like, don't be judging Pharaoh. The whole point is don't judge Pharaoh. Don't judge the pagans. That's the mm -hmm. point. Not that God just makes some people for trash, you know? Like, he was trying to get the Jews to not be so judgmental towards the Romans. And so yeah, Doug, I think that... Yeah, Douglas Campbell has a... I'm really excited about his upcoming commentary on Romans because he's really going to be able to put all of this together. So it just help us all to see it. You are a source of inspiration to lots of people. You're a source of inspiration to me, you know, just to realize that there are other people out there in the world that are feeling this and sensing it and preaching it. That's a confirmation to me. It makes me not feel alone, you know, and that we can connect through the podcast and through the internet and, so I, I just am um, really appreciative of your spirit and your journey and not giving, I'm glad you didn't give up because you came <laughs> to this beautiful place. And I'm really, really glad that you're, I don't know, a part of my life or a part of this way of understanding the Christian faith has just been transformation, so transformational for me and transformational for others and love what you're doing at the Zootown Church. And I'm excited to keep following what's going on there. And uh, I think there's more exciting things that are ahead. And so that just sounds wonderful, too. So just blessings on you. I look forward to the next time that, that we visit. And I just hope um, everything just keeps going in a good direction for you there at Zootown. Well, thank you. And I, like I said before, I'm honored to be on this podcast with looking at the names. Well, I've listened to all of your podcasts. So, uh, 
uh, just all the names that have been on here. I'm, I'm honored to be next to them. And I guess if I could just say anything to the audience listening, like at the end of the day, show yourself some grace in this process and know that there will be stuff coming against you as you process it. But one thing I have found out is that when people get upset about this, it's not that they're upset with me. It's God is doing something in their heart. So show people that same grace that you want in your journey, even if they come against what you're, what you're going through. So, Well, good closing words from somebody who has walked the walk. <laughs> all right man well i hope we talk i hope we talk more soon i'll talk to you later yep anytime thank you for joining us in this episode of grace saves all you can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on itunes if you want to find out more about david or if you'd like to leave him a message go to his website davidartman.net in the meantime let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.